What up, Epic Life? Spring break. Glad none of you guys have any plans. I'm just kidding. So glad you guys are here. It's, uh, it's just a joy to be with you guys. I'm just so continually impressed by people here and uh, all the amazing things that are being done in lives around us. It's really awesome. So thank you for being here. Uh, if you caught uh, the past few times, I'm doing this kind of teaching emphasis on the things and the truths and the pivotal times when truth grabbed a hold of my life and transformed me. As you'll hear, I've had a kind of a crazy journey in my faith where I picked up a lot of things that weren't abiblical, too, didn't make a whole lot of sense, but, but they kept me down and out and disengaged from faith. And so I look back at the formidable times of my relationship, and I look at a few different unique truths, and tonight's one of those nights. And the message tonight is called Lies, Law, and More Lies. See, becoming a Christian is supposed to set you free. Freedom should be the single most acute feeling you have when you receive Jesus. The challenge for me, though, was that fear was the most acute feeling that I felt. I, like many in my era generation, I wasn't saved by this loving God who loves you, who wants to have a relationship with you and, and build bridges so that you can communicate with them, that you could hear his voice and he could hear yours. I was saved by, if you died tonight, where would you go? And so I wasn't saved by the love of God or the power of God, of, of God's love. I was actually saved by being scared of hell. And so my life journey with my faith was always intertwined with this feeling of being really fearful of hell and pretty fearful of losing my salvation. I don't know if anybody in here was like that, but uh, I, I gave my life to every opportunity that was available, every church camp, every church service. Benny Hinn, oh man, I like gave my life to Christ with him on the TV at random times, so many times. Because you could never be fully quite sure, right? You're like, just in case I messed up the wording last time. And so I, I was so paralyzed in fear over sin, guilt, and shame. It stressed me out. When I think about my faith, I think about a whole lot of things of trying and being stressed out that I'm doing it wrong. Have you ever had that feeling like you're doing it wrong? <laughs> you know, have you ever had that feeling like I, I just don't know how to do this right? And for the majority of my life in my faith, I had that feeling like you're not doing it right. I didn't know what really it meant to... Uh, yeah, just to, to love God without all the, the stress and the burden. And even grace stressed me out. Like grace like was like not good news. I had this one guy like a church camp who was like, Jesus on the cross, his last dying breath was thinking of you. Blood coming down his arms. He's taking his gasp and you're on his mind. It's like the worst thing I've ever heard in my life. It stressed me out. It's like, I don't know this guy. You know, like, it was just this weird thing, like, here's this stranger, and you don't really know, like, like, yes, if you have a loving relationship with someone, that brings tears of joy to your heart. That warms you. That's like, man, that is love. But if you are in a fear-based mentality, this crushes you with guilt. If you actually don't have a relationship with Jesus that is love-based, the cross will crush you with guilt. How could someone like that do something like that for me? 
And so I had so much guilt for the cross, I actually, I didn't want Jesus to die for me. I was so burdened by just that fact of like that discrepancy between here's who I am, here's who he is, and here's what he did. It was too much. And so I was really afraid that Jesus' death wasn't going to be worth what my life would become. I was really sure that Jesus was going to have buyer's remorse. I was like, what's the refund policy on the salvation thing? Is Jesus going to be disappointed by the life that I lived when he, he hung on a cross and had nails in his body for me? Is he going to be disappointed with what I produce with my life? And so what happened is that these different things, I'm like, I'm crazy, right? <laughs> like these things produce these irrational fears. Things like what happens at the end of the life. I was like terrified of death. I was fearful of things like in the law and in the Bible, things I didn't understand. I was fearful of trying to do good enough to even earn my salvation. I was fearful that I wasn't even forgiven for recent sins. I was fearful that misfortune was always a result of a recent sin. And so tonight, I'm going to show you some of the scriptures, and I'm going to utterly destroy some of those lies. I'm not going to get through all of them tonight, because I don't want to keep you that long. Um, I wanted to keep the night good. So I recognize that long sermons, you can belabor the point. So I'm going to get through what I feel is good for tonight, and they'll pick up the rest next week. Does that sound good? So Jesus, we just ask right now that lies would be exposed. God, we just pray that chains would be broken. Lord, for anyone in this room that is being challenged with who you are, what you are, and what dynamic, loving relationship with you is, Jesus, we ask that you would reveal truth for what it is. Thank you, God, that your uh, word sets us free, and we just look to you now in Jesus' name. Amen. So here are a few of the lies. Lie number one for me. Despite having eternal life, I will have to account for all my wrongdoings when I die. Despite having salvation, despite giving my life to Jesus, at the end of life, when I stand before him, I'm faced with all that I've done wrong. And it's the last thing before I enter heaven is that I face all of my sin, all of my failure, all the things that went wrong. Think about it. Almost every idea of authority that we have governs and rules through fear of punishment. Fear and punishment go hand in hand with almost every single figure of authority in our life. Your parents, don't do that. You're going to be grounded. I'm going to withhold money from you. I'm going to take the car. School, I won't get into school, but uh, teachers and grades, jobs, you can lose jobs, taxes, you better pay your taxes because there will be consequences, Like, right? I mean, like all authority figures combine punishment and fear for consequences. And God. God is one of those things that fear and punishment is combined in our faith. And the scriptures seem to agree. Romans 14, 10 and 12. For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. Every person shall give an account of himself. Now, when I read this, I'm like, oh, dear Lord. This is not good news. This is terrible news. This is like, what? This is going to happen? Hebrews 9.27, just as man is destined to die once and after that to face judgment. These scriptures confirmed my fears. The fears that this life will be met before heaven is met with utter despair and facing all the wretched things that I don't want to face. But there's a problem. 
It's a pesky little passage in 1 John 4. It says, For God is love, and there is no fear in love. Instead, perfect love drives out fear because fear involves punishment. So the one who fears has not reached perfection in love. Are you seeing this? That could it be that God is the single authority figure, if you're in right relationship and salvation with him, that you do not need to combine authority and fear and punishment. It says, God is love and there is no fear in love because fear involves punishment. Now, but what about all these other passages? What about the passages like, I'll stand before the judgment seat? That sounds like bad news. So reading these, I was just like, rule of fear. Until I started researching, like, what happens at the end? So let's clear it up. You don't have to worry about a judgment. You have to worry about two judgments in the scriptures. This is really, really bad news. Until we understand that the two judgments are the judgment of redemption and the judgment of rewards. First, the judgment of redemption. It's when God separates the redeemed from the unredeemed. Matthew 25 Verse 33 says, all nations will stand before the throne and he will separate sheep from goats. The sheep will go on his right and the goats will go on his left. This is the first judgment. Basically seeing if you are the TSA pre-check line. Oh, you go over here. Nope, you go in that long line over there. Basically, he just weeds out. He says, are you a believer? Are you redeemed? Do you have the blood of Jesus on you? The first judgment is just, are you God's son and daughter? And you see what happens? The sheep, if you are in Christ, you've pledged your life to Jesus, you've confessed him as Lord, you are a sheep, that's the term of endearment, that you hear his voice, John 10, 27. If you're a sheep, you go on his right. And the scriptures tell us that this is where God gets really pissed. No. If you're the sheep and you go on his right, you know what you get? Judgment for rewards. 1 Corinthians 3, verse 12. says, Now if any man builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each man's work will become evident. For the day will show it because it is to be revealed with fire, and the fire itself will test the man's quality of work. If any man's work which he has built on it remains, he will receive a reward. The first judgment passes through and determines who's saved and not. The second judgment is about rewards. What you do with life stands before God, not the bad things of life, the good things that you've done. And the fire comes, and what is not noble, what is just for yourself or what is, what is not for him just goes away. It doesn't get rubbed in your face. It just goes away. It burns. And what remains stands. And your reward is based upon what you've done. Jesus says that you'll receive reward. The disciples are like, well, what do we do? I haven't done anything. He says, whatever you did the least of me. When you fed those who didn't have food, you fed me. We have no concept of even ways that we've served God, which is an amazing thing. But this is the time when your life is revealed for what it is, not for bad, but for good. And look at what happens next. 1 Corinthians 4, 5. It says that that time, each one will receive his praise from God. Each one of you will, see, will receive praise from God. Now just take a moment and think about that for one quick second. 
We spend all of our time here praising God, praising God, praising God. The scriptures say at the end of life, not only are you moved into the right-hand side, you're his beloved sheep, you have your life put on display for the good things you've done, and you get a reward, and then God praises you. Can you fathom the creator of all the universe praising you? Now take your greatest scenario, maybe for me it's like dirt bikes and backflips and this huge fireworks celebration, and now multiply it by 10 million. This is the most outrageous 10 words in the entire Bible that God praises you. Let me put this into perspective a different way. It's so important that we are not fearful at the end of life, that we're not fearful for what happens when we face Jesus. When Jesus comes back, we're, we're called the what? Bride, okay. The Bible uses a metaphor for when Jesus comes back. What is that metaphor? A wedding. Now think about this. If you're like me and you've been terrified, you've been absolutely terrified of the end, and Jesus is the groom and we are the bride, how would you like it for your wedding day for you to go up, go, it's, it's, the wedding day is the best day of your life, right? You look the best you ever will. <laughs> I can attest to that. You look the best you ever, you got the nice tan, you've been working out, you got the LGN diet, like you're there, you go to the altar, this is the amazing moment of your life, and now your spouse reads all the things that you've done wrong. Think about that. That is the worst wedding ever. But that's what we believe. We actually believe at the wedding ceremony that the groom is going to recite and make mention of all the terrible things that you've done. That doesn't sound like epic life. That sounds like lame life. That doesn't sound like a loving groom or father. But that's what the psyche, at least for me, was. Now, here's another thought. We know that Jesus is coming back, right? We actually know from the scriptures, 1 Peter 3, that we can hasten his return. Now, if you're a groom and your bride is terrified of you coming back, how quickly are you going to come back? When the bride is like absolutely terrified that you're going to come in, how likely are you to make haste and come? Probably not very fast. Could it be that the bride of Christ is so terrified of the groom that she's like, I don't want to hurt you any more than you're being hurt right now? When I found the scriptures that show me that I don't have to be afraid of death, I don't have to be afraid of judgment. Judgment is, is in this sense, it's a beautiful, wonderful thing. We had it backwards. That I could have my life on display in front of him, and the creator of the universe praises me. It just makes me go nuts. You guys good? Is that kind of cool? So number two, line number two, obeying the law makes me worthy of being saved. Obeying the law makes me worthy of being saved. Now, it's totally human nature to gauge our standing by our performance. We spend our entire lives measuring how we did. We spend our lives finding ranks and places. Our son, Maverick, he's 99th percentile for weight and height. He's like this little gargantuan you know, baby who looks like he's four, but he's like 14 months. 
We're graded on a curve. You have performance reviews. You apply to get into, into grad school. I mean, we have all these metrics in which we're, we are evaluated on our performance. Every area of our life is based upon how are you performing, how are you performing, what is your rank, what is your rank. And this has translated into our faith. And I believe that most of us, me in particular, have had this inseparable association between performance and good standing. Remember, I felt guilty for the cross. The cross is like the worst news ever for what it made me feel. But if I followed the law, I would make myself worthy of being saved. It's like, Jesus, I can't handle that I didn't contribute. I can't handle that you did it all when I was still awful. I have to do something. And I need to be worthy not only of being saved, but continually be saved. I'm not going to get into the message of how you can't lose your salvation. I'll save it for another time. But for me, I was just riddled in fear like I'm going to lose my salvation, lose my salvation, lose my salvation. And for me, I characterized the good standing of my relationship with God with what I did or did not do, or basically how well was I doing not sinning. My entire relationship with God was completely evaluated based upon how good was I this past week. It's like saying um, the judge of me being a good husband is not cheating on my wife. How good of a husband are you? Well, I haven't cheated on my wife. Or how good of a father are you? Well, I don't beat my child. It's a terrible way of, of gauging quality. Are you with me? Here's how my mentor relationships when I was younger went. Hey, Eric, how's your relationship with Jesus? Oh, man, it's awesome. I didn't do this. I didn't do that. I didn't do this. I didn't do that. Next week. Hey, Eric, how's your relationship with Jesus doing? Oh, it's terrible. I did this. I did this. I did that. I did that. And my entire intimacy was based, the good standing of my relationship was entirely based on what I had done or what I had not done. This is what I like to call a religious treadmill of death. Just to be a little dramatic for you. Where we never advance... The best you can hope for is to stay in place, and you always have the potential to fail. That's what a treadmill does. Your best job on a treadmill, you succeeding, is staying in place. And at worst, you fall off and make it on YouTube. The result is that if we are on a treadmill, we have a worthiness of salvation that we build in. It makes us feel like we contribute. As long as we're on the treadmill, as long as we're going, we feel like, okay, I kind of deserve this. I kind of am in good standing. He kind of is okay to love me. Now, the good news is the Bible completely destroys this notion altogether before we even can contribute. It's Galatians 2, 21, which says, if righteousness comes through the law, if righteousness comes through good behavior, then Christ died needlessly. I do like that one. If what you could do and what you could con contribute even resulted in a fraction of righteousness, then Christ died in vain. The cross was needless. Now I even feel even worse. The precursor, you have to know what this means, is that the precursor to your salvation was an acknowledgement that you could never contribute not even a fraction of a percent. The precursor to your salvation because if you could contribute at all, then the cross was meaningless. It's important to know that your salvation, the love of God for you, his relationship with you, has zero, nada, zilch. In Spanish, 
no. <laughs> in German, I meant to go German. Nine, right? I'm, I have a German heritage. You would know it by that one. But it's, it's to have zero contribution. Like it, it's, it's, it's less than zero is what you contribute to deserve God's love. Titus 3.5. He saved us not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us not because of righteous things he had done. If you did nothing to earn God's good standing, check this out. If you did nothing to earn God's good standing, there's nothing you can do to lose it. It wasn't yours to earn in the first place. And that's the hard thing, is we say, yes, I received God's love and I didn't do anything to deserve it, but we definitely feel we can lose it. That's the messed up thing, is we're quick to say, yes, I received salvation, I received grace, and I didn't deserve it, but man, do I have a fear that I can lose it. It's just not compatible with truth. Your failure cannot harm God. Your failure cannot harm your standing with God. Does it hurt his heart? Yes. Does it grieve him? Of course. Does your sin have consequences to you and people around you? Definitely. But it does not hurt your relationship with God. And I always allowed it to. When I fell, I put space. Because I felt that God was wanting space. God's never the lame boyfriend or girlfriend. Like, I just need space. I really want to focus on God right now. He never does that. Your failure can harm you, but it can never, ever, ever separate you one fraction of an inch away from God. Neither height nor depth, nor death nor life can separate us from the love of God. Romans 8. And so obedience does not make you any worthy. Obedience is not a substitute for relationship. Just because you're really obedient to certain things, like I held certain badges of like what I didn't do for a long time. So hey, I didn't do this. And I'm like, where does a little badge, right? That is not a substitute for relationship. Nothing I did in obedience ever advanced my relationship with Jesus. And this is exactly the rebuke of the Pharisees. Is Jesus says, you guys have mastered the craft of obedience. You guys have, and they said, you tithe on mint. Like if you had a little, you know, mint drink, and like, pluck out 10%. Like, here you go, Jesus, you know? Like, the mint, the herbs in your garden, you're like pulling little seeds off. I tithe to you, God. Like, they were that diligent in their flesh and their obedience. Look at how Jesus lights them up about this in Matthew 23. He says, Woe to you, teachers of the law, and you Pharisees, you hypocrites. You are like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside, you are full of bones of the dead, and everything unclean resides in you. In the Greek, this means that all sin and wickedness is in you. And he's talking to the people who had mastered behavior mastered obedience. He's like, you've trained your flesh, but you've neglected your heart. And we make good behavior a metric for good relationship. We set ourselves up to feel like we betray our relationship with God when we fail. Let me say that again. When we make good behavior the metric for good relationship with God, we set ourselves up for failure because we feel like we betray God when we fail. You guys good for one more? Number three. We are under grace, 
but still under the law. We're under grace, but still under the law. What is it? There's like, it's, I don't know, it's something about this era. There's like this big debate about grace in this era. One time I'll maybe talk on it. It's a, I love the topic now. I didn't before. And so we hear it all the time that we're, we're saved by grace, but sanctified to fulfill all the law. I've heard messages saying like, all the law is still relevant. It's just been satisfied by this coupon code called grace. Now, here's the challenge, is I actually went and researched some of the laws. In Deuteronomy, you can actually find 613 laws. There's some crazy ones in there. Now, in Deuteronomy, is interesting because you actually had an actual nation that belonged to God. You had a, a defined God's people. It, there's like a whole bunch of different things there. There's contextual, cultural things. But just let me give you a couple of them. If you shaved with a razor your facial hair this past week, you sinned. It's actually a sin to shave, to cut your beard with anything besides scissors. You can't shave it. Here's the, uh, a crazy one I found. If you are a rapist and your victim is not married, the law says you have to marry them. Crazy stuff. So I look at that, I'm like, um... I don't think that law is still in effect. I don't look like, I, I shave like my Gillette mock three razor like every other guy in the universe. And it's like, this is so sinful. Like, no, we're not. That's not the point. And we wrestle with, are we under grace or under law? Are we under grace or under law? And it's like, surely the Bible has something to say about it. And it does. Look at this, Hebrews 7, 18. It says, the former regulation is set aside. Everyone say Aside. Because it was weak and useless. The former regulation is set aside because it was weak and useless. For the law made nothing perfect. And a better hope is introduced by which we draw near to God. Are you checking this out? How is this debate still going on? Romans 10.4. Christ is the end of the law. Now, scholars are really in big debate about what it means when it says Christ is the end of the law. It really means the, the law is still going because he really... No, the, Christ is the end of the law. Like, I don't know how much clearer it gets than that. So that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. Christ is the end of the law so there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. Now, how does that happen? How did that... What happened there? We have this law, we have Jesus, and now we're really confused. Romans 8, 3, 4 says, For the law could not do, for what the law could not do, weak as it was. Again, the, the second passage that describes the law as weak, we glorify the law. But the scriptures say it's weak and it's never made anything perfect and it's useless and Christ is the end of it. It says, For what the law could not do, weak as it was, through the flesh, God did, sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and as an offering for sin, he condemned a sin in the flesh so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who did not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So then, like, what's the purpose of their, the law? Why is there even even mention of it? it does the Bible even give, if the, if the law is weak, useless, has never been able to make anything perfect, is there any use today? Does the Scripture tell us there's any use? Actually, it does. It's Romans 3.20. It says, Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, 
Through the law, we become conscious of our sin. Through the law, we become conscious of our sin. Here's what this is saying. The law is useless in doing anything good for you besides making you conscious that you need a Savior. Once you realize that you need a Savior and that you are fallen, once you realize that the law has done its job. Are you guys with me? The law is weak and useless. It never made anything perfect in my entire life. I was trying to find a way to be perfect according to the law. All the law is useful for is for unbelievers to see that they need a Savior. And when that Savior comes, righteousness comes to them through Jesus. And once you have Jesus, the law is totally fulfilled for its purpose in you. And now you have the righteousness of your own, the righteousness of Jesus. Jesus literally transformed you from sin-based flesh to a new creation that is of righteousness. This is my last passage. It's 2 Corinthians 5.21. It says, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. You are the righteousness of God. And yet we beat ourselves up on what we did. We, we strap ourselves to trying to be obedient to these rules and regulations we have no hope of ever contributing. Why? It's because we think that it can make us in right standing, make us worthy of being saved, and makes us perpetuate our salvation. Why? It's because we're totally messed up and totally fear-based. Do you see how crazy I've been? But I love it that the Word has the answers in here. But this isn't the end of the questions and the lies I had. I had things such as, Am I unforgiven if I do not confess sins? What if I sin if I'm, what if I die while sinning? What ha- oh my gosh, what happens then? What is, it, is God keeping track of my sin? What is God's role in his memory? And how does it affect me now? And are the things that are happening to me, me missing that job or me having that breakup or, or fill in the blank, that misfortune, is it somehow connected to my particular failure in my sin? So I'll address those next week. So let's pray. God, we just love your truth and we just thank you that you are liberating our minds. Lord, we thank you, God, that you are gentle and patient. You do not desire any of us to feel guilt and shame in what we have done or what we have not done. God, you desire a relationship with us and you're patient and will be willing to take it on whatever terms you want. So God, we just ask that you begin to reprogram our minds. For any of us in here who have been having similar fears and wrestling with, with these same things that I've got journeyed through with you, we just ask you to provide just a reset button. Would you clarify our minds? God, I'm reminded of, of 2 Corinthians, I think it's 3, it says that I fear the devil has tricked you like Eve and distracted you from the simplicity of devotion to Christ. Meaning that the complexity that we wrestle with is the work of the devil. God's devotion to you is simple and we've made it so complex. Lord, would you simplify us, restore us the simplicity of devotion with you. Thank you, Jesus. We love you. Amen.